A quick warning if you're listening with kids. This episode acknowledges the existence of music theory and socialism. Hey, I'm Pusher, and I hope you're having a lovely time listening to WKDU Philadelphia, 91.7 FM. Welcome to Genre Therapy, a safe space for all musicians to navigate the stories behind their songs and shine a light on parts of their music we might have missed. In this episode, Pusher shows us that inspiration is all around us. If we are curious enough to look closely, we will see new connections and notice that details are often much weirder than we remember. Together we unpack the world that inspired Pusher's single, I Could Give It Up. For the listeners who aren't aware of what January is, would you like to give your pitch? <laughs> January is a month-long challenge where you make a song, piece of music. It could be anything, really, a day. It's just a personal challenge. Uh, it, I started it, I thought I came up with it myself, but I realized very quickly as soon as I started doing it that it's actually well-established in the modular music community where people will just make you know little modular jams every day for a month. But uh, I don't do that. I make a full produced song. <laughs> like a minute, a minute or less, full produced song and a video every day, all month, and everything else in my life suffers. I love doing it though. And uh, I always come up with stuff. The first two years I did it, it was like very, very difficult. And it was a lot of like late nights and despair. But this year I'm settling into it a lot more. I've been meditating and focusing on the creative game. And so, you know, last year I would get started at 10 in the morning and sometimes be done at 3 p.m. and sometimes be done at 11 p.m. And this year I can start at like 6 p.m. and be done at 10. So. I mean, creativity can definitely come from just like putting in work. You know, it's going to lead you somewhere. I was just reading about Van Gogh the other day for song inspiration, and he did like 210 paintings a year for like 10 years, which is an awful lot. Uh, And by the end of that, he was doing all the stuff that 20 years later, 20 years after his death, people would be like, whoa, oh, okay, this is wild. This is great. So yeah I, I, yeah, I could get down with that. Creativity is divergence. I've been reading a lot of ancient literature recently or semi-ancient. I just read 1001 Arabian Nights. It's like a thousand years old, but like the compilation book is a thousand years old. And then the stories, because it's a bunch of short stories, it's anyone's guess how old those stories are and how they were translated and handed down and stuff. And they're just the zaniest, most entertaining, like I... Every page of it was an absolute delight. It was so much weirder than I expected it to be. It's kind of like reading the Bible if there was no like uh, cultural impact from the Bible. <laughs> but it was just like these, just in that it was a bunch of old, very strange tales, like guy gets swallowed by a whale sort of thing. Um, but like the Arabian Nights ones are all like, so I'm sitting by the side of the road and this genie comes up to me, right? And he's like, I'm going to kill you. And I was like, ah, could I get a year maybe just to settle my affairs? And the genie's like, okay. And it's like, where are these stories going? And it's just so entertaining and weird. And uh, it's changed my perspective of creativity. 
because I feel like if you have a short lens on history, like it's easy to look at stuff like maybe Pixar or, uh, you know, rock music even and be like, this is the sort of, you know, form for a song that works and this is what's entertaining to people. But if you read something that's a thousand years old and it's like, this is nothing like that in form. This is just like something wild happens and I'm like, what? And then something else wild happens and I'm like, what? Uh, I think it would be really interesting to contribute something that if someone listened to in a thousand years, they could find something in that's like, what is this? It's so like, it's cool. And I don't get why it's like this. Some people build great pyramids and some people go to the moon, but I'm just scrolling on my phone, lying in my room. I'm getting lost history no big statues going up for me if i can eat something and get out of bed well that level of accomplishment would go straight to my head so i'm getting lost to history i would like to contribute something that gives people pause like, even when I listen to the Beatles, like, it's easy to listen to the Beatles and be like, oh, yeah, this is a great classic sort of song. And it kind of lives in our subconscious because we hear that stuff so much. But if you, like, listen to the Beatles, like, George Harrison's guitar lines are just, like, weird. They're really weird. Like, if you take his guitar lines out of context, it's like, what, what, is, what is this? Like, what is he doing? It's so strange. What was that you said? I didn't hear it I was in my head And in my mirror Don't get upset Tell me what I missed I like it, there's something in it. When I first came up with it, I just couldn't get over the... I felt like I stole it. It sounded to me like some kind of like early 2000s post-punk melody or something from some song that I couldn't recognize. I mean, it's been two years now and I haven't identified any other song that has the same melody as it, so hopefully I didn't steal it but normally you know within a day I'll be like oh no that's the melody from this song if I accidentally stole a melody but I haven't identified it just the uh the do 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 I really love that and the way it plays against the bass line uh, I was just on my phone not addicted to the scroll I'm just being normal I can give it up I can give it up I was just on my phone told you that I'm in control I can do this alone I can give it up I can give it up I can give it up I could give it I could give it up I could give it uh, you know, it's about phone addiction, addiction in general. I could have written it about coffee, but also it being kind of normalized and, and the isolating factor of it, how it's like, no, I could do this myself. Like, I don't need your help. Like, it's, it's fine. Everything is fine. Everyone's on their phone all the time. Just trying to turn that thought, trying to turn that and the whole album in general, trying to turn genuine thoughts and things that are real to my life into songs that are catchy and fun. <laughs> Uh, and that is evidenced in this one by me trying to turn that sort of concept where it's like not necessarily the way that a, a pop song would normally be written into something that sounds sort of like a pop song. Uh, and it's evidenced specifically by that synth lead off the top. The fifth degree of the scale and the third degree of the scale going back and forth, also commonly referred to as the millennial whoop. 
So that is intentionally in there to give it that sort of like, look at me, I'm a pop song. It works. I mean, it works. <laughs> I feel like in a in my own mind in writing this song, I was conflating pop music with phone addiction because most both of them are so lowest common denominator. <laughs> like everyone's addicted to their phone. Everyone knows all the pop songs that are happening. And so using the pop convention to me was almost like a way of being like, this is for everyone, just like phone addiction, pop music. It's just every, everything's good. Don't worry about it. You know, don't look under the hood. There's nothing else going on. And then I hit them with a, a wild key change and a tempo, uh, not a tempo, a uh, time signature change in the, in the bridge. <laughs> Be like, whoa, wake up. I was in my head and in my mirror. Don't get upset. Tell me what I missed. I'll be right with you when I'm done with this. I was just on my phone, not addicted to the scroll. I'm just being normal. I can give it up. I was just on my phone. So the first version of this was probably made in, uh, I would say, three to four hours. Uh, like most of my demos are, sit down and just like get at least a verse and a chorus or get some kind of idea. Uh, try to finish it as well as I can uh, in that time, just so like, because I know that when I go back and listen to it for weeks after to decide whether or not I want to finish it, um, the production is going to affect how much I like it. And that's a stupid thing because the production is like kind of surface level. But yeah, it's really important to finish the demo to a, a state that is very listenable for you. The best you can get it in the moment anyway. Uh, but yeah. It's, it's more or less the song. Like there's, it's the first verse, it's the chorus, it's the post-chorus, there's an intro there, but that's more or less the song. Uh, the thing that I mo notice most about it is that the chorus production is not very good. Like when it first lands, it's, and it's really just a white noise, like a Without that, it just doesn't hit. It's such a silly thing. So it sounds like the the second drum group there has the the sort of hi-hat, the 16th hi-hat, which is actually a synth, just the, I've filtered out everything super low, and it's just like a 16th note, ta 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 And then there's a heavier, or sort of a bigger clap with more reverb on it. Uh, it's actually from the Sophie sample pack. So it's got that sort of like very synthy industrial, kind of like almost techno clap to it. And then there's a lot of reverb on it. Sounds really big. Um, there's a noise hit off the start, like the kss, and there's also a cymbal with almost no uh, release on it at all, just a kss, uh, just for a bit of frequency, and, uh, oh, there's a bongo thing. Um, yeah, the bongo thing you probably noticed least, but, like, in that first iteration of the song, it doesn't have the cymbal, and it doesn't have the noise, and it doesn't have the hi-hat, I don't think, either, and so the chorus almost doesn't land. And that's really the only difference. It's just a production thing. Uh, 
Um, so, I mean, you definitely hear most of that stuff. You don't hear the bongo so much, but it does add something. Like when I take it out, it just doesn't, it might even just be a rhythmic thing. Um, on its own, it sounds so stupid because <laughs> it sounds like it's just a little major chord and it sounds like Yoshi walking in old Super Mario World. Uh, that was always the thing I noticed about Super Mario World. When you hop on Yoshi's back, it's the same music, but it's got a little bongo. <laughs> When you hop on Yoshi's back. So we've got the millennial whoop thing off the start and it happens in the choruses. Uh, and that's sometimes doubled with a xylophone. Uh, I thought it sound, sounded a little ringtone-y, but that wasn't overtly what I was trying to do. Um, it was a little overtly what I was trying to do, but I just thought it worked, basically. It sounded right. Something about it. I don't know. Xylophone. Uh, and then at the end of each verse, uh, there's a counter melody with sort of a softer uh, synth that happens, you'll probably just overlay that. And that's just a trick with writing verses, uh, just to escalate things a little bit, because uh, there's no pre-chorus in the song. It's just the verse and the chorus. So at the second, in the second half of each verse, I'm layering in a little bit of a synth lead just to fill things out and add a little bit of a contrast and escalate things and keep things moving, give your ear something to listen to. Uh, never want the ear to get bored. And then uh, sometimes that counter melody overlaps in the choruses with the millennial whoop. But uh, because of the rhythmic nature of the two of them, they kind of play well together. Like the millennial whoop is a faster do 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 And then the, the counter melody is much longer notes. Uh, and then the, the only other thing in the stem is at the end of the bridge is just one long note, sort of a crescendo thing into the last verse. Yeah. Or in the last chorus. This is the tale of a not-so-incredible man-spider. Born a poor young radioactive superbug in the evil Oscorp labs, one day he escaped from confinement. During his daring escape, he had a run-in with a human called Peter, whom he bit. Well, he said, ew, a spider. Peter swatted him and left him for dead. What I did realize is that me and Peter P would trade abilities. <sighs> so I can't climb on walls, sling web, or see into the future anymore because Peter took those powers. And I now have poor vision, low physical strength, social awkwardness, and I can't juggle my personal responsibilities. But I did suddenly get a new uncle, though. Recently, I've been running YouTube ads on Bill Wirtz videos, actually, because my music is kind of similar to that. But it's just been songs. It's like a little one-minute song, and they're fairly absurd, and they're fairly fast-paced. But I get comments on the videos being like, didn't skip this ad, or like, why was this served to me? Is this selling something? Like, what is this? <laughs> and it's, you know, it's not expensive to run YouTube ads, so you can put anything in that space, and people are going to be like, if it's not an ad, because you're, you know, you've got a five-second ad. You expect a five-second ad. There's this massive expectation there. Every video on YouTube has an ad on it now. They didn't used to, but now every single one does. And so if you like, 
You know, you turn on your video, the ad loads up, and then some bizarre song plays. And you're like, what? What is this? Uh, I think that subverting people's expectations is probably the most powerful tool that we've got as creatives. What I really wanted to do with the bridge was sort of make it like a psychological leap from the rest of the song, like almost incongruous with the rest of the song, but the sort of thing that's like the first time you hear it is like, what is what just happened to me? And then as you listen to it more, it becomes very, very familiar and you don't notice it at all, uh, which I think is uh a very specific songwriting technique that I've picked up on just as a listener. Cause sometimes you listen to a song and be like, Whoa, what was that? But then like the more you listen to it, the more it's just like, Oh yeah, this is just how the song goes. It doesn't bother me at all. Um, like Bohemian Rhapsody, probably the first time you hear Bohemian Rhapsody, you're like, this is all over the place. But then like, you get to the point where it's Wayne's world and you're like, everyone knows the words and everyone knows their parts. And like, <laughs> it's like, it's amazing to me that that song has so many twists and turns and that probably any random person on the street could hum their way through the entire thing properly. It's incredible. And so anyway, I just wanted to have a bridge that was like a big psychological leap and then something that quickly becomes uh, familiar upon multiple listens but I wanted it to be as disorienting as possible to sort of mimic uh, how I think phone addiction can kind of be. Like when you start to look at it close, just like caffeine addiction, like it's kind of all good. You know, you're just sitting there. You're not really doing anything. You're not hurting anyone or whatever. But then, you know, the flip side of that is that it's slowly eroding our democracy and everyone's time is being capitalized like 16 hours a day. And it's it's pretty dark it's pretty dark and pretty overwhelming and wild and uh you know if you dive into your psychology it it it's probably a lot going on under the hood i mean there's a million percent a lot going on under the hood uh, so that's kind of what i'm seeking i feel like if this album is designed to appeal to any one group of people it's probably musicians because uh, I don't know if this is super well established or anything, but I saw a talk by um, Susan Rogers, who produced for Prince and the Bare Naked Ladies, and uh, Geggy Ta, who was uh, in part Greg Kirsten, who now produces for people like uh, Adele and uh, everyone, basically, Sia and everyone. But uh, Susan Rogers says that the reason Prince succeeded so well is because he found a way to appeal to the three major groups of people. There's the critics, the musicians, and the general population. Gen, gen pop, like in a prison. <laughs> you know, the yard. <laughs> but uh, the, the thing that Prince did, I think intentionally, was make three albums, each one of which appealed to a specific group of people. So he uh, 
uh, it was Purple Rain was the third one, but the I don't remember the names of them, but the ones that came before that first one appealed to the critics um, to like, you know, get that critical opinion floating around. And the second one appealed to the musicians to get the professional opinion swirling around. So people were kind of talking about Prince. And then the third one appealed to everyone, uh, hit the, the general population and then also the critics and also the musicians. Um, and I feel like if this one appeals to any one specific group, it'll probably be musicians because it, it's kind of all over the place. And I do stuff like write a pop song where the bridge jumps to a different key center really quickly and, you know, a different time signature and uh, all kinds of stuff like that. So I feel like this will probably appeal to musicians the most, but I'm trying to appeal to everyone as much as I can because I need more money to make more ridiculous things. And I don't want to go crawling to labels for it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious uh, about what you think your musical career might look like under a socialist regime where you didn't have to worry about those things. <laughs> well, I'm a small portion of the way there as a Canadian uh, because we have, of course, in part... Uh, Canadian government funding for music stuff. Uh, I've got a, so there's a, there's a organization in Canada called factor and it's, uh, an acronym that I forget what it stands for. Something artists, something talent. Anyway, uh, factor is partly funded by the Canadian government and partly funded by private radio. And they make available about $25 million a year to, uh, something in the ballpark of 2,500 different artist projects. And so this album's one of them. Uh, it would be really lovely if we had some kind of basic monthly income where I could just make music <laughs> and like not worry about dying if it's not commercially successful. <laughs> that would be super. Because, <laughs> you know, it's it kind of always is in the back of your head, like, what if this doesn't do well commercially? And that's such a toxic thought. I've been trying to overcome that lately in the stuff that I've been making. And we were talking about, you know, the creativity game and trying to think about what you want to contribute to the to the you know global community and to the art community um, and that should be the thought that you have but instead the thought that is constantly nagging is will this get streams and I don't think that that's conducive to good art and it's you know in a person like me where I'm like trying to self-actualize and you know live up to ancient wisdom and and some of the greatest artists that I think have ever lived that thought is persistent and I try to put it down because I'm aware of it but there are certainly lots of people where that is the primary driving force like how do I write a song that gets viral on TikTok how do I write a song for you know this uh, specific playlist on Spotify like how do I make money with this how do I most accurately rip off uh, Lean On by Major Lazer so that it makes money but doesn't get me sued. Like, how do I make the money off this? And there are certainly thousands or millions of people where that is the primary driving force. And uh, that's a little scary. It's a little scary for art that capitalism is like so infected art. So, you know, I've considered moving to Vietnam. <laughs> But, you know, it's an internal struggle as much as any other internal struggle living in a capitalist system where if you don't participate in the system that is forced upon you, you will starve to death. Yep.
Yeah, fortunately, I had a little bit of commercial success, though. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm not, not dead yet. I don't know. And now, here's I Could Give It Up in its entirety. Links to stream I Could Give It Up are in the episode notes on our website, genretherapy.org. I Could Give It Up was written, performed, and produced by Pusher. Mastering by Ruben Ghost of Mojito Mastering. Cover art designed by Roman Despinas and photography by Kimberly Lee. Special thanks also to vocal coach and producer Marla Joy and manager Sarah Woodward. Genre Therapy is hosted and produced by Ben Shennerman for WKDU Philadelphia 91.7 FM, a non-commercial, student-run, free-format radio station. To listen to more original shows, 
you can stream on our website, wkdu.org, and Philadelphia listeners can tune in at 91.7 FM. To support local non-commercial radio, consider making a donation on our website, wkdu.org donate. An archive of previous Genre Therapy episodes is available on genretherapy.org. Thank you for listening. Thank you.